The average person spends roughly 10,000 days of their adult life working. So this is 10,000 Days, a podcast exploring career journeys and the ways that we can apply that time to make a positive impact in the world. The goal of this podcast is to offer you tools, strategies, and inspiration to reflect on your own career. We have an amazing lineup of guests joining us this season that will help you navigate your journey, design the career that you want, and find the courage to make it happen. Welcome to the 10,000 Days Podcast. We're glad that you're back with us for our second episode of season two. Today, we have another outstanding guest. Her name is Sasha Chomos, president of Dynamic Achievement. Sasha is a leadership coach and consultant based in Vancouver, uh, although her early days were spent in Ottawa, where you are, Ian. In Ottawa, she learned to be a leader on the fly. And as she talks about early in the interview, she was thrown into a position where she was suddenly leading quite a big team. And uh, as she as she talks about, no one really prepared her how to do that. No one prepared her how to lead. She's going she's gonna to touch on that in this interview. You'll see, she's a pleasure to speak with, full of enthusiasm. And lots of very interesting insights on uh, purpose confidence and building what she calls a vertical mindset yeah lots of great takeaways in this one with sasha who we have both worked with in the past um mindset and, and building that vertical mindset is is a particular topic that sasha is an expert on and while we talk a lot about what is the right mindset we also dive a lot into some practical ways to practice and build that mindset and, and build those habits. Um, Greg, was there anything else in this interview that uh, folks should be listening out for? Yeah, the thing that I think the the listeners will will find interesting is, and and this is a big topic right now, and that's that's finding your purpose and reason for for getting out of bed in the morning and, and doing the work you do. Sasha helps us to to get a bit closer to finding that out for ourselves, um, to be able to get the best out of ourselves and and out of our careers. And she also talks about how you must take care of yourself first. So sleeping and, and eating well, exercising if you're able, all of this puts you in a space to to better manage your mindset. And, and before we jump into it, we want to thank our sponsor for this season to be determined. Again, Day Merrill and her team at To Be Determined are there to support you with all of your career planning and executive and job search needs. To learn more, head to tobedetermined.ca. That's the number two, the letter B, determined.ca. Now, we hope you enjoy our conversation with Sasha Chomas. Sasha, welcome to the 10,000 Days podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So we've we've introduced your bio to the audience already, and, and to start off, uh, to hear it in your own words a little bit, uh, can you talk a little bit about your your background and how and how it led to your expertise and your work in leadership development and organizational culture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, maybe like a lot of people who end up in consulting in leadership. Um, how it started for me was the first time I became a manager and had to start leading people. Um, and in the day, I was living in Ottawa, actually, and I had been working uh, as a tour guide on Parliament Hill, which was a university summer job, it was an amazing experience, still probably to this day, my all-time favorite work experience. Um, and so I, although I'm originally from out west, I decided to move to Ottawa and work on the hill. 
Um, and that led to successive positions um, within the, the parliamentary public programs. And then I was doing training, recruitment, and then eventually I became the manager of visitor services. So if you've ever been on a tour of the parliament building, it's a fairly substantial operation. It sees mm -hmm. like at least like half a million um, you know, visitors a year, if not more by this point. And so I was responsible for all of the staffing. I had, you know, there are at least 50 tour guides and that's a periodical seasonal job. So we're recruiting at least a couple of times a year. Uh, there are also contractors uh, because there would be uh, performers and actors that would perform on the grounds for visitors, et cetera. So I was suddenly managing this operation I had been part of for a number of years and very quickly discovered I didn't know a thing about leading other people. <laughs> um, and although my team will tell you, you know, there were many things they loved about me as their boss, I know full well there were some really um, epic failures on my part. And, and so I got really curious about this thing called leadership. Um, and that's where I think almost anyone who's been in a supervisory manager or leadership role can relate to the fact that you are never fully prepared for what it means to actually lead other people. Um, Cause they don't teach you that. They just say, you know, you're going to have this job. It's going to be pay more money. It's going to have more responsibility, but they don't actually tell you the reality of what it's like to lead. So I then decided to go and get educated myself because I had no training or background in it. And uh, so I went and I did a master's degree in leadership. That then led me literally to a whole other career, um, initially within human resources and organizational development roles, and then eventually out on my own as a consultant. But I've spent about the last 20 years now working exclusively in this domain of wanting to help other people develop the skills that I wish I'd had when I was mm -hmm. managing. It's, it's interesting to hear because that's kind of what we're trying to achieve here with this podcast, mm -hmm. too, in terms of answering the questions that uh, I wish I had answered or had the answer to, yeah. you know, five, 10 years ago. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and it's such a fascinating field and it's evolving and, and dynamic field. And maybe that's really a good transition uh, mm -hmm. to my next question. Your, your work now with, with dynamic achievement. Could you tell us a little yes. bit more about that? So for the last six years, I've been part of a company called Dynamic Achievement, initially as a consultant, uh, now as a full partner in the business. Uh, it's myself um, and my business partner who, who had Dynamic Achievement. Um, and our work here specifically, obviously, leadership is a big part of that. And underneath all of that is really the big focus for us is around mindset and culture. Because leadership becomes fundamentally an outcome of not only our individual mindset, but culture is fundamentally our collective mindset. And if those things aren't operating correctly, you can imagine leadership isn't going to show up very well either. So, so it is still a, a you know a very strong focus on developing leaders. Uh, we also work in developing sales teams and customer service teams as well, both from a management perspective as well as frontline and dealing with clients and customers. But all of that work is underpinned by a development of mindset and giving people not only that that mental ability, but then also the skills to perform at a very different level. And especially given the environment we are in today, um, I actually believe the mindset piece is even more critical than ever. So you mentioned mindset and, and mm -hmm. cultivating mindset. And so I'm, I'm curious to know in, in times of change and uncertainty in the workplace in 2022 is there a right mindset 
you know, it's interesting, right? I, it, it is true. There's a lot of change and uncertainty right now. But the truth is, life has always been uncertain. And life has always been about change. It's just that it's now happening at an exponential level mm-hmm. that, you know, is really unprecedented for most human beings. But life has always been uncertain. Um, and that's like the first most fascinating thing to understand about the mind is that our minds are hardwired to want certainty and to want to maintain the status quo. Then you get put onto this planet called Earth, which is all about uncertainty and change. And you have like the first big challenge for us as human beings, which is I don't really want change, even when I know it's good for me, right? Like, look at how much we resist change. Um, And I want to feel like I'm in control. And I want to know that I have certainty of how my day is going to go, how the week's going to go, like what's going to happen to me. And like, so we have the first big problem here with mindset. And so when we talk about the right mindset and, and mindset, of course, is a word that's thrown around a lot now, but in the context that I work with it, the right mindset is the mind that understands that there's a lot about life that I have to accept and quit resisting, or I'm going to create a whole lot of suffering for myself. And so the right mindset is frankly one that accepts and in many ways embraces change and ambiguity. The right mindset is one that understands that there is a much bigger picture at play than just my personal preferences or my likes or my dislikes or what I'm trying to control. So so that's really the the initial piece of it. Um, I will say more specifically in our work at Dynamic Achievement, we really focus on making a clear distinction between two particular mindsets, one that we call the horizontal mindset and one that we call the vertical mindset. But the horizontal mindset is the, the part of our mind that is driven by fear and greed. And so even if you think about the words change and uncertainty, for a lot of people right away, that's going to bring up some stuff. Oh, I don't like it. It worries me. I have anxiety, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's normal, by the way, and it's natural. But when fear becomes the big driver of the mind, we don't make good choices. And so fear can, although it's natural and it's a great warning signal for us, unfortunately, we tend to have a lot more fear than what is really warranted a good chunk of the time. Um, And then the second driver of that mindset, greed, you can think of it as greed in the context of, oh, I want more money or more power or more status. But it's also greed in the context of, especially as it relates to uncertainty, I I want things to be like they've always been. Oh, I wish the workplace could be like it was before the pandemic, you know, or I wish, you know, the work was like it was when it was this small, you know, little business and we all felt like a family and now there's like 800 people here. And it was like, so that's another form of greed when we're stuck on the way things used to be in the past, or we're just waiting for things to change. It'll be so much better when I get that next job or that next boss or that next house or the like life will be better when or I'll be happy when that's also greed because we're not present to what's actually happening with mm. us right now which means mm-hmm. we're yeah, we're creating more suffering for ourselves mm-hmm. so that's the mindset again it's natural and normal for all of us it's part of the human experience but it's not the mindset that's going to help you navigate this lifetime whereas instead what we call the vertical mindset that's the mindset that that is driven by creation purpose, meaning, like fundamentally what we are here on this earth to do, right? At our best, this is what we are as human beings. We're creative, we're innovative, like 
we create entire lives for ourselves, families, careers, you know, and then never mind what we create in those businesses of products, services, innovations, etc. And so at our best, this is where, you know, even look at the pandemic, you have the people who were completely driven by fear. And in some cases, went out of business, right, because they just did not know how to adapt. And you have the others who went, hang on, there's all these new opportunities, there's something else we need to create and innovate here. And their businesses absolutely took off. And it might have been in a completely different vein than what they were doing before the pandemic. So those two types of mindsets, again, they're normal for all of us. But ideally, you want to be cultivating more of the vertical mindset, because that's what helps us thrive and adapt and create in the place of whatever life is actually dealing mm. us in that moment in time, not how we wish it was. Sasha, I think it's I think it's great the way that you explained those two mindsets, but how how does one go about implementing a vertical mindset? Yeah. What are some real <laughs> some steps yeah. somebody could take to actually make that uh, the way that they think and, and hopefully Absolutely. make it permanent? Well, and this is where you know, the phrase, it's simple, but not easy comes into play. Because frankly, those are daily, weekly, monthly, yearly practices. Let's say, you know, you want to be a good athlete, or you even want to be really skilled at something you do at work, you know, you have to practice it time and time again. It's no different with mindset. And especially so with mindset, because the way you think determines how you're going to end up showing up. It determines how you behave and it therefore determines the outcomes you're going to get. So, I, I mean, obviously in our work, we take people through a number of different steps. And some of them that, that I can share with you is first and foremost, do you have any type of self-awareness, be that um, a reflection practice, a mindfulness or a meditation practice, where do you even know how your mind is operating in the first place? Because in the work that I do with people, if they don't even know how their mind is operating, they don't even understand, for example, like, oh, that's fear talking all the time. So, so step number one is really about, have I got some type of awareness practice that helps me become more in tune with what is my mind telling me? And is that actually working for me or working against me? And then the other one is, is also about what is my sense of purpose? Let's just say I tell you, oh, my purpose is I want to make a lot of money. Okay, like, that's cool. We all want to make money because that's like a basic survival need and, and beyond and stuff like that. But if that's like my whole reason for being, it's not going to get me very far. And that means the mm -hmm. second that I'm thrown with a challenge, like, again, <laughs> it could be the pandemic. But even, for example, you've just we've got a lot of companies right now laying people off. And if that's your goal and suddenly you get laid off or you get demoted or whatever happens, well, your whole thing, your whole like being is thrown for a loop. Mm -hmm. A larger sense of purpose and meaning is literally about what am I here on this earth to do? And who is that in service to? And there's some kind of contribution or legacy that we want to be making. And the sooner we can tap into that, you know, that then, then frankly, it makes the hard days that much easier because you understand why you're doing what you're doing. You can go through the same layoff or demotion or whatever it is and understand that, you know what, there's still a bigger picture at play. There's still ways I can be of service or helping other people. And that's going to come back and help you in the end, too. So that can seem like a more nebulous piece, but I find it's a really, really critical one because when people don't have that, 
they are at the mercy of like all the events and situations and behaviors, you know, outside of themselves, instead of having this internal compass of why am I getting out of bed in the morning? And why is it that I'm doing what I'm doing? And by the way, people sometimes think, oh, I'm supposed to have like this grand purpose of, of saving the world. That That's not the point. Purpose in the way that I'm talking about it is just, are you thinking about something beyond yourself? That might be, I want to be an amazing parent. I want to be like, I want to be an amazing daughter or son to my parents and help take care of them or whatever. If you're trying to make a difference for even one other person or an animal or you know, the planet or like, it doesn't matter. It just matters that it's something beyond you. No, it makes sense. I, I love it. And I, I agree with you to have some purpose makes such a difference. You said to get out of bed mm-hmm. in the morning. If, if you're laid off, your whole identity isn't wrapped up in, in something, but how does somebody go about discovering their purpose? I know that's mm-hmm. probably a big question, but, but what do you think question. about that? <laughs> and, and the second part is, I want to know if, if you think your experience through COVID of people been looking for purpose maybe more than they had uh, previously Mm. before this happened? Yeah, you're right. It can seem like a really big and sometimes daunting task of how do I discover my life purpose? Um, and, And so let's put this in perspective, right? Purpose is fundamentally what are the things I'm most passionate about? What are the things I, you know, that I might have some natural talents or strengths in, in that particular area? So if you even start there, right? And and frankly, purpose is going to change over time. Like my purpose in my 20s is very, very different than my purpose. You know, well, I'm not going to give my exact age. but <laughs> No, but I mean, truthfully, I'm 48. Like my purpose now is very different than it was even 10 years ago. Um, and I think that's quite normal. It's not like one of these things where you discover it at, you know, 21 and then there you're set for life. It's going to evolve because I was passionate about different things than I was now. I have different skills and frankly, some better skills now than I did then. So even if you start there, what are the things I'm most passionate about? And or what are some of the strengths that I really have that allow me to contribute, you know, in a greater way? So, for example, one of the things I've always been passionate about is learning. And I was super passionate about leadership. And then my contribution and and also my strength became I'm a really good teacher, because, you know, I had strong presentation skills from probably all those years as a tour guide on Parliament Hill. So I was I was able to take the content and start teaching it and facilitating. And so suddenly here I am and my purpose is now like developing other leaders. That didn't dawn on me when I first started, but it's been part of, of the evolution. So, so that's some advice I would say about that one. Um, as to your question, Greg, about the pandemic. I think we saw a lot of people reevaluating, <laughs> reevaluating what was truly important, uh, what in fact they wanted. And there was now an opportunity, of course, for some major shifts, whether that meant changing careers entirely, deciding to work differently, where am I going to live? Um, I mean, we saw some people leave the workforce and frankly, never come back. So, so there's been a lot of that major reevaluation. The interesting thing will be to see how much it sticks. And now that life is, well, I'm going to say sort of going back to a new or not back, but at least moving to a new normal, it'll be interesting to see how much of that sticks for people. But I it definitely from what I've seen and witnessed, the pandemic caused a lot of people to reevaluate what in fact is most important to me and how can I live in a way that's more in alignment with that. So mm. I don't know if the two of you have had the same experience, but that's <laughs> certainly what I've seen. 
Absolutely. No, it's certainly been my experience. And I think we'll, we'll return back to, you know, the impacts of, and, and I think maybe what's coming as well in terms of return to office um, in a little bit. But I, I do want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier about, you know, fear and anxiety along mm -hmm. that, along that horizontal mindset. Um, and, and I think just to maybe contextualize it, one common challenge that I think people have to overcome quite often is imposter syndrome. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a prime example of a challenge that, that people encounter in their professional lives. From, from your experience and, and the companies and, and the leaders that you work with, how big of an issue is imposter syndrome in the workplace for, for professionals at, at all levels? You know, it's such, it's such a fascinating topic. Um, okay, problem number one, imposter syndrome has become kind of this catch-all phrase that is really not helpful. <laughs> so I'm not really it, helping and, the and conversation. No, 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 you are, Bia, but I, you're helping because I think I, let's bring some light to this. Um, yeah. If there's a way of being helpful because let, let's really break it down, right? Imposter syndrome is fundamentally on some level, I feel I'm not good enough or I feel that I'm going to be discovered as a fraud. I'm not going to be as competent as maybe they thought I was or some way, shape or form, I, my work is not good enough. Show me a human being on the planet that has never thought that at some point in time, other than like a narcissist or a sociopath, right? Um, but for most normal, you know, mentally well human beings, we all experience that sometimes because we all have insecurities. Now, mm -hmm. imposter syndrome itself, what that was really meant to address initially was around high achieving performers who had an inability to accept their successes and just could not see themselves in the same way that other people saw them. And, and the term has kind of been taken now and used for as soon as I feel any type of discomfort or insecurity or not feeling fully confident, people say, oh, I have imposter syndrome. Mm -hmm. uh, to mm -hmm. me, that's a problem because now you're identifying with this thing. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, you know, because it's like literally saying it's the difference between I'm feeling insecure about this particular task to saying I'm an insecure person. And those are two very dramatically different things. So so personally, like when I work with clients, I'm a big fan of stop using the term imposter syndrome. You don't have a syndrome. <laughs> you have some natural and normal insecurities about certain things. So what I also want to highlight is that we all have insecurities. My God, I have insecurities about, you know, certain aspects of my work or, you know, with other aspects of life, et cetera. It doesn't mean I'm insecure about everything, but there are certain things that A, might not be my strength, or we're all insecure and nervous when we're first learning something. Um, and so it's quite normal. I mean, for example, if you're brand new to a job or brand new to a company, it's totally normal that you're going to feel nervous for a good chunk of time, maybe even the first 12 months, because you're on a huge learning curve. You're getting to know people. They're getting to know you. You're trying to prove you're and establish yourself. It's completely normal. What tends to surprise most people is that I also work with, you know, executives and C-suite level who will also tell me I have imposter syndrome. Why would they have an imposter syndrome? And again, let's just go back and call it like an insecurity or a nervousness, mm -hmm. because imagine how much responsibility sits on their shoulders and having to make decisions about what are incredibly, increasingly complex and difficult things 
I mean, again, imagine trying to be a leader in this pandemic. No one's ever been through it before. We have no idea what's happening. And the information is changing on a daily and sometimes hourly basis. If you didn't feel some sense of nervousness or insecurity as a leader, then you weren't paying attention. So, you know, and, and so I've worked with many leaders who have also said to me, oh, I have imposter syndrome, et cetera, because of course they also are learning and they know that there's this, this incredible responsibility that sits on their shoulders. And if I make the wrong decision, then how's that going to go? How am I going to be perceived, et cetera, right? So, so I just, A, want to normalize this in terms of saying everybody has it. Mm-hmm. And B, let's stop generalizing it as this whole, like, I have a thing, I have imposter syndrome, and instead become more specific about, you know what, this particular thing I'm new at, or I'm learning, or this isn't my best strength. Um, you know, and, and that's okay, because I can still learn it, I can get, you know, assistance with it, etc. So I think that that in itself, can be much more helpful for people to, um, to understand it's totally normal and mm-hmm. B get very specific about what are the areas you're actually feeling some nervousness or insecurity about and not make it about, Oh, everything about me is somehow going to be found out fraudulent, incompetent, etc. Sasha, I find that I find it so interesting that, that people who are in leadership positions who are externally very successful Mm. often have more, I'm not going to call it imposter syndrome, uh, yeah. more anxiety um, or ins- yeah. about their role. When I think most people would assume they've been so successful, they must have a, must not have it. They must not have that anxiety or a special way of dealing with it. So, so to be, what, what I'm hearing is there's definitely a mm. correlation between the bigger the role or the more success and often more anxiety. Well, there can be, you know, I mean, it's, the other thing about imposter syndrome is we t- tend to attribute it to the individual, right? Like y- you bring that. But the truth is, it's, it's also not that simple. There are things within our workplaces, in some cases, maybe not all, but definitely within some, that that can create imposter syndrome for people. So so in particular, for example, and imposter syndrome, by the way, when it you know first became part of you know our lexicon, our language, was really attributed more to women. If you go to any conference that is predominantly for men nowadays, you are not going to find a session on imposter syndrome, whereas I can almost guarantee <laughs> you a conference geared toward women is going to have mm. a session on how to overcome imposter syndrome, right? So, so A, does that mean that women are more insecure? No. But what it does mean is that the women have historically, and still to this day, dealt with quite a bit of bias in the workplace. They get questioned on their competence, their leadership style, even, you know, if they're too confident or somehow too bossy, too brash in a way that men have never been questioned. On top of that, depending how people are given feedback in the workplace, um, and this can be a really big problem, leaders can, and, you know, I'll say leaders, but in this case, it may be less skilled leaders might be giving feedback that's in fact creating that within the team or within the workplace or even for an individual. Um, And what I mean by that is, let's say, you know, you're at work and your manager keeps giving you feedback telling you, you know, you're really unprofessional. um, You know, the way you're doing this just isn't working. um, You know, you're not thinking this through. You're, you know, I'm not sure you're committed to this. Like, so when they give you this very generalized and what I'll, I'll call like very character-based feedback, that starts chipping away at your confidence. You're unprofessional, like what does that mean? 
Um, you're not committed. What does that mean? It's easy to start internalizing that as, wow, I must not be good enough. Like this must be something about me. Whereas like really high quality feedback is supposed to be very specific about your work or behavior in a way that you can tangibly change something about it. It's sometimes the individual who brings it. <laughs> and it's also sometimes the system or the bosses, the leaders that create it. So this is where the whole topic gets really, really interesting. And where sometimes, you know, I've worked with many people who are in jobs, for example, right now, where they feel incredibly insecure, unvalued, um, like their work isn't good enough, etc. But when I asked them about a previous work experience, they were thriving, they felt confident, etc. What's the difference? In this case, it's not just the individual, it's the fact they're in a completely different work environment that does not mm -hmm. support their success. It doesn't support their growth. And so they're losing confidence as they go because of like how they're being spoken to. They might, you know, they're being belittled um, or condescended to criticize that kind of thing in a way that's chipping away at that confidence. So it can come from all different sides is also what I'm just trying to highlight. Well, let's assume somebody's in a toxic situation. I think the best mm -hmm. advice would be, hey, move on, get to a, yeah. get to a situation that's not toxic. But for those Ideally, who just, yeah. if those professionals who are dealing with just anxiety and sort of in, in general, what are some techniques that they could consider to counter that and, and to, to perform at their best? And here it's going to depend because, you know, anxiety, like anything else, can be on a spectrum uh, from, you know, mild, you know, situational type anxiety to chronic um, and severe anxiety, in which case, you know, I think absolutely, you know, therapy, um, you know, and, and professional counseling help is, is needed there. But if we're talking like just some general anxiety, um, you know, or milder cases of it, again, I, I am going to come back to the mindset practices. There's this is where, again, the, some of those same tools. Do I have a regular, you know, kind of practice for uh, whether it's meditation or mindfulness, some way of calming myself or reflecting so that I can bring this into a bigger perspective? Um, because our minds left to their own devices can be incredibly unhelpful. And, and if there's anything I always say, I would rather be more in control of my mind than having it control me. And for most of us, our mind controls us without our awareness. We have, mm -hmm. my gosh, I think the, you know, it's something like 90,000 thoughts a day or more. And most of them are garbage, right? They're these repetitive, <laughs> like nonsensical thoughts, anything from, oh yeah, here's the grocery list running through my head, um, you know, 10 times to, you know, oh, I'm, I'm worried about this. And what if I don't do this? And what if they pick up on this? And if we're not paying attention to that, that's going on in the background in our, you know, our subconscious all the time until again, we bring awareness to it. And in one of the things I have my coaching clients do when we work on things like imposter syndrome, insecurities, etc, is to start really tracking the repetitive thoughts that show up for them. Um, and that requires some practice, some ability mm -hmm. to be still and notice like, what are some of the things that keep popping into my head throughout the day? And then I have them write them down, you know, or type them on a computer so that they're in black and white, Versus just thinking about it in our head, um, it, you know, and of course, the, you know, the old adage, you would, you would never speak to a friend the way you, we, most of us speak to ourselves, um, really comes into light when we see it on, on paper. Um, in other cases, I will also say there, and here's where we come back to the foundations of if you are not taking care of your health, a lot of this is a moot point. If you're not sleeping well, then the first thing I tell people is let's get focused on working on your sleep. 
if you're not like moving, like exercising and eating well, then we got to also focus on that. But because those are foundational pillars that can be easy to neglect. But we, most of us know the costs of neglecting those things and sleep, especially if you're not sleeping, then trying to work on your mindset is frankly a waste of time because you will not have the actual health the capacity to be able to do much, both physically or mentally, never mind emotionally, because you are not well rested as a human being. And there's so much that happens for us in sleep um, that allows us to function well and, and perform at high levels. So those are all like really foundational practices. And the truth is exercise and movement and sleep, those are all great things for helping to reduce anxiety. Because they get us out of our heads, back into our bodies, and in a, in a much healthier place to begin with. It's, and it's really great advice. And I think even just contextualizing what you're feeling in, in that moment. A lot of times it's, you know, am I hungry? Am I tired? Did I only yeah. sleep for four hours last night? So that's all part of the mindfulness piece. Um, a lot of which we're actually going to be talking about on a later episode, which we're planning to be episode four. So mm -hmm. the listeners can, can keep an eye out for that. Um, so again, it's really, really great advice. And actually, maybe I'm also going to drop a recommendation for a book, which is called Chatter. Uh, it's yes. by Ethan Cross. Yeah. Have you heard of great this one, one, Sasha? Yeah. Love that yeah. book. A really concrete advice, just like you were giving um, and, and helps contextualize you know, those thoughts. And Yeah, um, definitely. As I agree with you on that, it's got lots of really good practical exercises and a good variety of them because different things work for different people. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think it's a great recommendation. Maybe just expanding a bit more on, you know, the anxiety and, and confidence piece, um, but putting it in that context of uncertainty and change and, and specifically with return to office, which is a mm -hmm. really hot topic right now, especially yeah. in Ottawa. Um, yeah. So, so my question is for those that are returning to office, how can people find confidence in new or hybrid environments? This is an interesting one, right? Because again, mm -hmm. like at the start of the pandemic, none of us have been through this before. <laughs> you know, myself included, I'm sure that, you know, for both of you as well, like mm -hmm. this is new territory. So, so to expect to feel confident is probably setting yourself up for disappointment because it's hard to feel confident in a situation where there's no precedent. There's no, uh, oh, yeah, I've done this before in my memory bank. So so I think first off, just accepting that at least at first, this is going to feel a bit uncomfortable because I've never done it before. My office has never done it before. So no one's got the roadmap for what this is supposed to look like. So again, I think that's that's piece number one is let's all just accept that this is going to feel really awkward and bumpy and uncomfortable for a little while. And I think the other key in this is really clearly communicating as much as possible. And that means, you know, obviously from the office perspective, um, whether it's, you know, managers or, you know, the people who are responsible for, you know, a lot of bringing people back to the office, the organization of it, et cetera. Of course, in an ideal world, there's lots of communication happening about that. We're talking things through as much as possible. But it also means for each of the individuals, if there's stuff that you're concerned about or nervous about or wondering about, et cetera, then it's also really important that you bring that up with someone. Because one of the things that helps give us more confidence is when we have a little bit more certainty. 
so communication is is a big one. Does company culture still have a part to play? There's mm. there's the classic meme of we want you back in the office for company culture, and then there's the picture of the company culture, and it's uh, a very gray, <laughs> empty cubicle, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. D- does company culture still have a part to play? Yeah, I mean, company culture is still really coming I mean, again because culture. If you bring it back to its essence, culture is this is the way we do things around here, right? It's like the, well, frankly, the mindset or the personality of the organization. So it still has a really important part to play. I do think, you know, one of the the things uh, organizations are having to take and will have to take a really hard look at is what is our culture going to be like in a hybrid or virtual environment? Um, Because I have a number of clients who are you know, and this is where sometimes the clinging comes in is we want to maintain the culture we've always had and we want it to be exactly like that no matter what. Well, maybe that's possible, but I, I have a hard time believing that when you're you're just not operating the same way anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, relationships and the way we work, if you've gone from a fully in-person to now hybrid or even virtual environment, that is not the same workplace anymore which doesn't mean you can't have a lot of the the aspects of your culture from before, but you've got to consider how does that look in this new reality? What would we need to put more emphasis on or less emphasis on? You know, how are we going to do things? So company culture becomes incredibly important. It, It always has been. But now, especially when you have the absence of people being together on a day to day basis, you have to be much, much more intentional about how am I going to create or how are we going to create this type of environment, whether it's within our team or our department or even the entire organization. And Sasha, do you think that the leaders are ready to lead the, this sort of hybrid work revolution? Or do you think there's a lot of work to be done to set the the expectations, to, to, to set the culture and to communicate that? Yeah, I mean, there's there is a lot of work to be done. Do I think leaders can do it? Yes. And, um, you know, the added challenge that I see right now is like a lot of frontline staff, a lot of leaders that I see and work with are frankly quite burnt out. Um, You know, the last two years have really, they've taken their toll on everyone and, and they have really, really taken their toll on leaders who have had to be anything but in an area of strength as they've, you know, had to deal with all this stuff around health and safety. And are we in the office, not in the office, like all these things that most of them, you know, never signed up for, so to speak. I mean, none of us did. So that makes this challenge even more interesting. Um, On on the other hand, many leaders love the culture work. (laughs) They love that piece. So my hope is that this will be part of what actually helps to reinvigorate them is oh, right, I want to focus on what are the types of relationships I want to be creating with people? And, you know, how do we do these types of things here? How do we ensure there's a strong sense of team or communication um, or purpose within the group? So I do think they're ready for it in the sense that some of that work at least is a bit familiar to them. It's just they have to do it in a new context now, and they have to do it when they're probably not feeling at their most invigorated. It's going to be interesting. It's definitely going to require a a new sort of generation or a new perspective on leadership that we've uh, that we've not seen before. Yeah, yeah, I would fully agree with that. And what about the 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 young professionals sort of starting out in their career? Uh, Are there other skills that you believe are going to be 
critical for um, in order to succeed in the in the new normal? Yeah, probably. I mean, one of the the biggest ones, obviously, especially if you're if they're going to be working in a hybrid or virtual environment, is what is your ability to build relationships? What I'm seeing, you know, especially with people who have started a job in the last two years and they're onboarding and their whole experience has been only virtual, it's really hard to feel connected to build relationships when all you're doing is working virtually with people. So I do think that actually now becomes a real skill to develop in the hybrid and virtual world is how good am I at starting to build my network, build relationships, and and I now again have to be more intentional and instigate some of these social connections because they're not going to happen naturally by just bumping into someone in, you know, in the hallway or in the lunchroom. Um, and the last one I would say, I mean, certainly for leaders, but I actually think for everyone, you need to get really, really good at being virtually competent. And, and by that, I mean, if you're facilitating meetings online or leading them, but also participating in them. Um, you know, one of the things I've found so fascinating over the last couple of years in the pandemic with, you know, different sessions online with teams is you have somewhere everyone's on camera, you know, they're actively participating. And then uh, others where there's a bunch of people off camera or people who just refuse to come on camera. And now I get that to a degree, especially earlier in the pandemic, you know, not everyone's got had a great setup, you know, to be able to do this from home, etc. But by now, if you don't have a proper virtual setup to be fully participating in the meeting and to be visually present, it's very disconcerting when to be in meetings with people and to not see them and to not have that nonverbal and that body language. And it's, it's a huge part of even just bringing our personalities and our connection into this. So, you know, some people like, you know, might be really introverted and want their cameras off, et cetera, or it's like, oh, you know, I haven't showered yet today, but you're still working. This is still your chance to make an impression, to connect to others, et cetera. So I do think really developing the skills to be very strong and, and to develop your presence virtually is going to be a critical skill in the years to come. It's really great yeah. advice. It's really great. And and it, it, it makes me want to go and revisit my whole background setup. Right <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So before we let you go, Sasha, where can uh, people go and find more uh, about yourself and Dynamic Achievement? Yeah, well, certainly the website itself, uh, which is dynamicachievement.com. Um, that would give the information certainly about the company, the the programs, the services we offer, et cetera, um, the one-on-one -on -one coaching. For myself, personally, I am most active on LinkedIn. So people can look me up there. Um, I try to, you know, share information, um, you know, thoughts that I've had or insights or even sometimes just um, stories from, you know, my own experience or, or working with clients that I think can be helpful to others. So absolutely, people can can look for me there and, um, and connect with me. And, and that's probably the best way you're going to track me down. One last final question that we mm -hmm. always like to ask all of our guests. If you could leave the audience with one piece of advice as they continue building their careers and as they continue navigating their 10,000 days, what would that be? Again, I think mm -hmm. absolutely that virtual presence. Um, that is where we are now, and it's certainly where the future is. So consider how you are showing up in every single venue, whether that's in person, online, like if if you want to make a particular impact and develop a particular kind of presence or reputation or status, then you have to ask yourself, does my online presence communicate that? 
because my in-person presence communicate that. And so really try to narrow the gap between the impact you want to have and how you are in fact showing up would be the, you know, the single most important piece of advice I think there is. Well, it's great advice and it's it's been great insights throughout the episode. So thank you so much again, Sasha, for, for joining. Oh, it's been a total pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks again to Sasha for joining us on this episode. And thank you, the listeners, for tuning in. Yeah, this was another great one. And again, very practical and relatable for us and uh, hopefully for you two uh, in the audience. On the next episode, we connect with Mark Woods, founding senior partner of Aquita, a consulting firm based in the UK, which specializes in leadership, culture, and inclusion. All topics that we dive into with Mark. A big shout out again to To Be Determined. Make sure you check out their website for support with your career coaching and guidance needs. This has been the 10,000 Days Podcast, and we'll see you soon.